The text for our sermon this morning, Job chapter 9, and we'll read verses 1 through 4, and then 32 through 33. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him that we should both, that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for their children's sermon. Today we're going to learn about one of Jesus' titles, one of the names he has as our Savior. He is our mediator. Do you know what a mediator is? Okay, good. A mediator is someone who gets in the middle of a fight between two people to help solve the problem and bring the two sides together again as friends. Now, the only way that someone can be a mediator is if he is an equal of both sides. He has to be someone that both sides trust and respect. He can't be loyal to one side more than the other because that'll make him unfair. In the verses that we just read, Job teaches us something very important about God's way of salvation, that it is through a mediator. Now, what did we just say? A mediator is someone who brings fighting sides together and helps to solve the problem. And Job's words, of course, bring a couple questions to our minds. First of all, who are the two sides that are at odds with each other? Well, they are God and man. And what is the problem between God and man that needs to be solved? The problem is sin. The two sides at war with each other are God and man. And Job teaches us that we need a mediator so that we can be saved. Our mediator must be a true man. He can't work fairly for our side if he isn't a true man. But salvation also requires that a mediator, that there's a mediator on God's side. Job's words teach us this. He says, he is not a man as I am. A mediator who is going to represent God has to be God's equal. Otherwise, he couldn't represent his side fairly. The problem between God and man is sin. And sin is a big problem. Because first of all, by sin, we steal or we rob from God the obedience that we owe him. That's why we pray, forgive us our debts. Sin is a debt to God. And secondly, sin must be punished. God won't forgive anyone unless his sins have been punished. The mediator that we need must be a true man like us, but he can't have any sin. He must be perfectly righteous. He couldn't help us with our problem if he was a sinner too. But he must also bear the punishment for all of our sins. And the only one who can carry a burden that big the burden of sin and the burden of God's anger against sin, the only one strong enough to bear that burden is God himself. Well, that's our problem. Man is responsible, but only God is strong enough to solve the problem. But God loves his children so much that he has made a way for the sin problem to be solved. And that way is that God himself should come to earth as a man. And so Jesus came as a perfectly sinless man, and he obeyed God's law for us, and he was also punished for all of our sins. None of those sins, none of our sins have gone unpunished. See, Job says that he needs a mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. 
Job means that he needs someone who is equal to him and is also equal to God, someone who can be a mediator to lay his hands on both their shoulders and bring the two sides together again as friends. And this mediator will take the rod, that is the punishment, for Job. And God will take his punishment, his rod, away from Job. Now, who is the mediator that Job is talking about? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is a true man, a real human, just like us, except he is not a sinner. And Jesus is also God. You know, God's name in the Old Testament is Jehovah. We just sang it in the song a minute ago. And Jehovah means, or Jesus, his name Jesus means Jehovah saves. The Bible calls Jesus our great God and Savior. Well, I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because we're going to learn more about these things. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O oh, dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Last week, our catechism lesson taught us three important things. First, that God has made a way for fallen sinners to be restored again to His favor. Secondly, that this way of redemption cannot be affected by us. And that's because God's way both satisfies His justice and fulfills the righteous demands of His law. And that is just something that no mere man could do. Certainly no sinner could do. God's way of redemption allows that a substitute may do this for us. If there can be found anywhere a real righteous man who is able to perfectly obey God's law on our behalf and bear the full, eternal, infinite wrath of God, then we may be received back into God's favor. Today we learn who the Redeemer and Deliverer is, why He must be who He is, and that His work is perfect. And with that, we come to our outline, number one, a perfectly righteous man, number two, God and man, and number three, perfect salvation. First of all, a perfectly righteous man. Today's, today's catechism lesson is a necessary unpacking of the subject from the previous set of questions. We are led to see the greatness of our need before we learn the greatness of the mediator provided and the method of his saving work. Last week, we adverted several times to the first proclamation of the gospel found in the promise of Genesis 3.15. That promise reads, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We also saw that Adam and his sons in the line of Seth believed this promise, and they demonstrated their faith in the promise by the names that they gave their sons. The names of the patriarchs from Adam to Noah are Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalaleel, Jared, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Those names are formed from Hebrew words. The revelation of God, the great gospel promise of Genesis 3.15 was preserved and proclaimed in the church by way of this genealogy. When Noah recited his genealogy from Adam to himself, he proclaimed the gospel. Those names, when read in sequence, formed a sentence which reads, 
Man is appointed mortal sorrow. The great God shall come down preaching. His death shall bring the despairing comfort. Now, if you look this up, you'll find articles referring to it as a, a secret, like it's a coded message hidden in the Bible. But that's not even remotely true. It's not a secret at all. It's right there on the surface. And the reason we don't notice it is because we don't speak Hebrew. And if you wrote a book about your family, and let's say your kids were named April, Rain, May, and Blossom, and then your book was translated you know, into Estonian or something, the significance of the names would be similarly obscured behind the veil of language. It's not that there's a secret hidden message and you need a super spy decoder ring to crack it. You just need to know the other language, which incidentally is one of the reasons why ministers are supposed to learn the biblical languages in seminary. The preacher's job is to interpret Scripture, and how can he faithfully interpret Scripture when he himself is in need of an interpreter? Anyway, this 10-generation prophecy is an exposition of Genesis 3.15. And taken together, they tell us the faith of the ancient church, the faith possessed and professed by Noah, Shem, and Job was all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. Because man is thus ruined, God himself will come down to save his people. Though he is eternal God, he will come as the seed of the woman, as a true man, and he will die for his people. In this way, the serpent will bruise his heel. The death of the seed of the woman will bring rest to those who are weary and heavy laden. And since the seed of the woman is also true God, death cannot hold him. And therefore, the very bruising of his heel will crush the serpent's head. That's the doctrine of our catechism lesson. And we see this doctrine in our text this morning from Job 9. The gist of Job's whole speech, which is chapters 9 and 10, is that he needs a mediator to represent him before God. Now, there's an interesting tension in all of Job's speeches. He protests his innocence, but he never claims to be sinless. His protest is limited to the specific situation in which he finds himself. His friends hurl accusations at him like, Job, you must have done something really bad, otherwise none of this would have happened to you. Job's not claiming sinlessness when he protests. He's just denying their accusations. He doesn't even particularly object to his suffering as a result of his own personal sinfulness. He's merely denying that it's the result of some particular evil that he's hiding. Because in chapter 31, Job says, If I cover my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. I'm sure you recognize the allusion to Genesis 3 in those words. When God came calling for Adam after he sinned, Adam hid. And then when God exposed Adam and his sin, God also cursed the ground so that in spite of Adam's toil, the ground brought forth thorns and thistles. The tension is that Job declares his innocence, but he also declares his need of a mediator. What is a mediator? We talked about this with the kids a few minutes ago. What does a mediator do? A mediator is someone who stands on equal footing with two parties and represents them in a dispute. He must be on equal footing with both parties in order to represent them equally. Both sides can honestly say, 
He's one of us. Now, in most disputes, a mediator isn't terribly hard to find. But in the case of man's sin, well, that's another story. We need a mediator who is truly man. Our instructor tells us that this is because God is just. God won't punish any other creature for the sin man has committed. Now, remember what we saw last week, that God is just, which means that every single sin must be dealt with. God will not leave any sin undealt with. And since God is just, only a man could be punished for man's sins. God will not accept an angel, for instance, as a mediator because an angel is neither man nor God. And animals won't do. Animals don't have immortal souls anyway. Only man can be punished for man's sin. But more specifically, our mediator must be a righteous man. He must be without sin. A sinner cannot rescue a fellow sinner. A debtor can't bail out a fellow debtor, especially if the debt is to the same creditor. I mean, can you imagine someone addressing the bank for foreclosing on his friend's house and saying, look, I'll put myself up as surety for him. And then the bank says, no dice, pal. You're farther behind on your mortgage than he is. We ought to be foreclosing on you. And so he says, well, look, I'll let you foreclose on my house in lieu of his. What's the bank going to say? Well, that's no good because taking your house isn't going to recover what he owes us. You're both in the hole. Now, if our mediator be a mere son of Adam, then he's a sinner. And you notice something interesting about the Bible's descriptions of lineage. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Every generation is called the seed of the previous generation's father. So Isaac, for instance, is Abraham's seed. Jacob is Isaac's seed. A lot of you farmers purchase the fluid emission of bulls, and I'm being delicate because we have children here. The English name of that substance is actually just the Latin word for seed. My point is that seed is specifically represented as the source of each successive generation, and it comes from fathers. But Scripture says something unusual about Jesus. Genesis 3.15 calls him the seed of the woman, but woman doesn't have seed. This prophecy is forward-looking, anticipating Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Jesus was not prophetically called the seed of the man, but rather the seed of the woman. This was said in anticipation of his conception by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit of Mary while she was as yet a virgin. The material substance of Jesus' body was taken from her, as was his truly human, reasonable soul, which was sanctified in the womb so that he was truly man and yet born outside of Adam's broken covenant. What Job is expressing is the fact that no mere man can be his mediator, and yet his mediator must be a man. This is a knot that only God can unravel. And that brings us to our second point, that our mediator is God and man. I want you to notice what Job says in verse 32. He is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we should go to court together. Now, there are several things to be observed here. A, Job knows that he with whom he must deal is not a man. B, Job knows that he must deal with God. C, Job knows that the nature of the issue between him and God is judicial. And D, Job knows that he needs a mediator to speak to God on his behalf. 
He is not a man as I am that I may answer him. In other words, I need someone to speak for me as a man, but this one who speaks for me must be God. While it is true that Job is prompted to these observations by his suffering, he isn't saying this with specific reference to his suffering. Job is speaking in big picture terms. He's speaking of his entire existence, not merely his current trial. And we know that because Job protests his innocence, but he also acknowledges the existence of a judicial conflict between himself and God, for which he needs a mediator. Job recognizes that this mediator, to do the job right, must be a man. But no man is sufficient because all men are sinners, and sin is the problem that requires mediation in the first place. Moreover, no mere man is sufficient for the task because God is not a man. The mediator must be a true righteous man, but he must also be true God. And here's where we come full circle with last week's catechism lesson. The reason that our mediator must be God is twofold. First of all, he can't be on equal footing with God if he isn't God. He can't mediate in the conflict where the aggrieved party is God unless he is also God. But secondly, and directly related to our sermon last Sunday, no mere man could endure the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin. Our mediator represents us by being killed for us, by dying the death that we deserve for our sins. Our mediator represents God by being infinitely holy and sinless and capable of exhausting God's infinite wrath. When we say the words of the creed, He descended into hell, we're affirming that God's eternal hatred of sin and sinner was poured on Christ. Christ could do it as our substitute because He was truly man. But it was only because He's truly God that He could endure it. And more than that, He could endure infinite wrath in a finite period of time. God's wrath against sin is eternal and infinite. But Christ drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs and emptied it. Jesus endured, exhausted infinite wrath. And it's only because He's God that He could do so. His suffering deserved punishment isn't meritorious. Suffering punishment for sin is only meritorious if the sufferer is truly without sin. You know, like the sinners in hell are not paying off their debt. They're being justly condemned by the holy law of a holy God. When people get squeamish about the justness of eternal punishment, they're betraying a low view of God's holiness and a sub-biblical view of sin. The Bible tells us that God is omnipresent which means that He is present everywhere, or better yet, that everywhere is present before Him. And that means that the eternal torment of the lost in hell is always before Him, and yet He never breaks down and in pity lets them out. God is so holy that He can happily view the torment of the lost day after day after day for eternity. And Scripture calls that the beauty of holiness. Hell isn't remedial. The condemned don't repent, and their suffering isn't atoning. It, you know, it's not uncommon for people to say things like, one of these days, you're going to realize the truth, but it'll be too late. 
And I, that's just, if, if you're referring to hell, that's just simply not true. And this is the reason why hell is eternal. The condemned never repent. They don't eventually pay off their debt. The condemned never repent. Repentance is everywhere represented in Scripture as a gift of God. So why would God condemn a man to eternal hell only to later gift him with repentance, which is the beginning of faith in Christ? I mean, can you imagine God saying, oh, so you believe in Jesus now, do you? You're truly and sincerely sorry for your sins now, are you? Well, too bad, bucko. Ha, 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 ha. No, the sinners in hell remain eternally sinners, and therefore they remain in eternal punishment. Hell isn't remedial. Question 13 asked, can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? And the answer was, by no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Now, based on that statement, are we supposed to think that the condemned in hell are in a better state of personal sanctification than God's elect? We can't make satisfaction to God's justice because we daily increase our debt. But we're supposed to think that the condemned in hell aren't daily increasing their debt, that they are repenting. Now, there are people who entertain the unbiblical notion that hell will eventually end. But look at what they're stuck with. If hell ended, that would mean that the sufferings of any old Joe Blow sinner, given enough time, would eventually satisfy God's justice. Now, if that were true, then the death of Christ was absolutely unnecessary. Let everyone go to hell, and with enough time served, they can eventually suffer away their sins. It would be unjust of God to keep them there if they had paid their debt. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about the good news. Why then all this talk about hell? Well, this is why. Our catechism teaches us that the power of Jesus' divine nature strengthened and sustained His human nature so that the human nature was enabled to endure the eternal wrath of God. Now think about whatever it is you imagine the torments of hell to be like. And then magnify that, multiply that by like a billion times because we underestimate God's hatred of sin. And then realize that Jesus endured that physically. And the miracle was not that He's God so the suffering was a cakewalk. The miracle was that His deity kept His human nature from being crushed into oblivion by the burden. And in His human nature, He knew, felt, and endured every bit of the anguish and torment. No mere creature could endure the infinite wrath of God against our sins. And that is what Jesus did. When He said, it is finished, He was declaring that the infinite wrath of God against the sins of His people had been exhausted. Not a scintilla of wrath remains. Only God could pay our debt, but He didn't know it. We did. And therefore, He became man while remaining true and eternal God in order to do for us what we couldn't and wouldn't do for ourselves. Now, there are a couple of related issues that we'll need to tackle because this is a point where the enemies of our Reformed faith attack. 
And the first objection question is, if the wrath of God against a single sinner be so unbearable, how could one man, as their substitute, sustain the wrath due to such a multitude? An already answer, of course, is that due to the strength of his divine nature, he could sustain in his human nature, uh, his divine nature could sustain his human nature under any degree of suffering. But that answer doesn't go quite far enough because it opens the grounds for a second question, which is, upon what principle of justice can one man be accepted in the place of many? That's the real question. If he be a mere man, how can God's law be magnified by his suffering? Let him suffer never so much, so that many sins can escape by his substitution. Well, the obvious answer is that he is accepted as substitute because the dignity and worth of his person surpasses all individual men combined. The personal worth of Jesus Christ is greater than that of all the sinners he represents in the covenant of grace. And therefore, he is a sufficient substitute for them. Christ is so majestic that he was able to accomplish in the brief span of his life on earth what the sinners in hell can never accomplish. Had Jesus been merely a true and righteous man, but also not very God, he could not have cried, it is finished. The punishment of sin is eternal punishment. Punishment without end. There's no completing of it. And it's only because Jesus is man that he could be a suitable substitute, but it's because he's God that he could accomplish the work. And that leads us to our third point, a complete salvation. The gospel was always God's plan. God first revealed it in paradise and afterward, as we read earlier, published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented it by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law and lastly has fulfilled it in His only begotten Son. Now, since I've preached on this aspect uh, so often, I want to focus instead on what the Catechism says Christ is for those whom He represents. Question 18 says that Jesus is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now let's think back quickly to verse 31 of our text. Job speaks of going to court to stand before God the judge. His great need is an advocate who is on equal footing with both himself and with God, his judge. He needs a mediator and redeemer who can complete the work. When you stand before God the judge, you need a complete salvation. You need wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And this is what Jesus is to us, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30. Wisdom is the first thing that the sinner needs. He needs to be enlightened by the Spirit of God to see his folly. We need wisdom. Jesus is our wisdom. The sinner needs righteousness. God in His love has established a righteousness which fully satisfies every requirement of His holy law. And to be sure that His people obtain it, God gave Christ to be their righteousness. Repeatedly, the prophets called Jesus, Jehovah, our righteousness. We need righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. The sinner needs sanctification. Not only has God acquitted us of our guilt, but He declares us holy in Christ to such an extent that God does not see sin in us. Numbers 23, verse 21 reads, He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. 
The Lord does not behold in His people the imperfections of their sanctification or their continual wavering in the faith. They couldn't be acceptable to God in such an imperfect state, and therefore God sees His people in Christ, their substitute, who is perfectly holy. We need sanctification. Jesus is our sanctification. But Jesus is also our redemption. He redeemed us the moment that He regenerated us and translated us into the kingdom of light. But He is also a continual redemption to us. He delivers us from the snares of Satan and the world in the way of our crosses and trials. But one day, as our perfect Redeemer, He will completely deliver us from the body of sin and death. And in the day of judgment, He will redeem our bodies so that we, in body and soul, will eternally adore, praise, and magnify Christ for our complete salvation. We must forever give up the folly of thinking that we can save ourselves. If salvation requires the mediation, substitution, and death of the sinless God-man, what folly must it be to imagine that we, sinful, corrupt, Creatures of the dust can accomplish our own salvation. This doctrine can be clearly seen in our text. The theme runs through the whole chapter. Job longed for a person to stand between God and him. He opens his discourse by saying, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? This is the most important question anyone can ask. Eternal destiny hangs on the answer. Job answers his own question and explains why a man cannot be righteous before God. In verses 3 and 4, Job says, If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? Job is affirming here what he's later going to learn by experience, that no one can stand before God and answer his questions. And the end of the chapter explains the problem and the necessary solution. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job knew that he needed a mediator to stand between God and him. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Those words of Job's to lay his hand on us both refer to the mediator bringing the parties together. Job needed someone to reconcile him to God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 34, Job continues, Let him, let the mediator, let the mediator take God's rod from me and do not let dread of him terrify me. A rod administers punishment. Job wants a mediator to take away the punishment he deserved. But if God took it from Job, he would have to lay it on someone else. Sins can't go unpunished or God would be unjust. Job expected his mediator to receive his punishment. As we read in our responsive reading this morning, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And then Job concludes, Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. In other words, because the mediator took the rod for Job, Job would no longer stand in dread of God. So when Job says, It is not so with me, he's saying that he knows that this is not within his power. 
The mediator Job longed for is available to us when we suffer. Jesus allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray.